Chapter Twenty of The Crown of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laura Riley. The Crown of Life by George Gissing. Chapter Twenty. On the journey homeward, and for two or three days after, Piers held argument with his passions trying to persuade himself that he had in truth lost nothing inasmuch as his love had never been founded upon a reasonable hope irene derwent was neither more nor less to him now than she had been ever since he first came to know her a far ideal the woman he would fain call wife but only in a dream could think of winning what audacity had speeded him on that wild expedition it was well that he had been saved from declaring his folly to irene herself who would have shared the pain her answer inflicted nay when the moment came reason surely would have checked his absurd impulse in seeing her once more he saw how wide was the distance between them no more of that he had lost nothing but a moment's illusion the ideal remained the worship the gratitude how much she had been to him rarely a day very rarely a day that the thought of irene did not warm his heart and exalt his ambition he had yielded to the fleshly impulse and the measure of his lapse was the sincerity of that nobler desire he had not the excuse of the ordinary man nor ever tried to allay his conscience with facile views of life what times innumerable had he murmured her name until it was become to him the only woman's name that sounded in truth womanly all others cold to his imagination what long evenings had he passed yonder by the black sea content merely to dream of irene derwent how many a summer night had he wandered in the acacia planted streets of odessa about and about the great square with its trees where stands the cathedral how many a time had his heart throbbed all but to bursting when he listened to the music on the boulevard and felt so terribly alone alone irene was in england he knew nothing of the patriotism which is but shouted politics from his earliest years of intelligence he had learnt listening to his father a contempt for that loud narrowness but the tongue which was irene's the landscape where shone irene's figure these were dear to him for irene's sake he believed in his heart of hearts that only the northern island could boast the perfect woman because he had found her there should he talk of loss he who had gained so unspeakably by an ideal love through the hot years of his youth who to the end of his life would be made better by it that were the barest ingratitude irene owed him nothing yet had enriched him beyond calculation he did not love her less she was the same power in his life this sinking of the heart this menace of gloom and rebellion was treachery to his better self he fought manfully against it circumstances were unfavorable to such a struggle work 
absorption in the day's duty, well and good, but when work and duty led one into the city of London, at first he had found excitement in the starting of his business. So much had to be done, so many points to be debated and decided, so many people to be seen and conversed with, contended with. It was all an exhilarating effort of mind and body. He felt the joy of combat, sped to the city like any other man, intent on holding his own amid the furious welter, seeing a delight in the computation of his chances, all at once a fighter and a gambler, like those with whom he rubbed shoulders in the roaring ways. He overtaxed his energy, and in any case there must have come reaction. It came with violence soon after that day at Malvern. The weather was hot. One should have been far away from these huge rampart streets, these stifling burrows of commerce. But here toil and stress went on as usual, and Piers Otway saw it all in a lurid light. These towering edifices, with inscriptions numberless, announcing every imaginable form of trade with every corner of the world. Here a vast building, consecrate in all its commercial magnificence, great windows and haughty doorways, the gleam of gilding and of brass, the luster of polished woods to a single company or firm. Here a large structure which housed on its many floors a crowd of enterprises, names by the score signaled at the foot of the gaping staircase, arrogant suggestions of triumph side by side with desperate beginnings, titles of worldwide significance meeting the eye at every turn, vulgar names with more weight than those of princes, words in small letterings, which ruled the fate of millions of men. No nightmare was ever so crushing to one in Otway's mood. The brute force of money, the negation of the individual, these, the evils of our time, found their supreme expression in the city of London. Here was opulence at home and superb. Here must poverty lurk and shrink, feeling itself alive only on sufferance. The din of highway and byway was a voice of blustering conquest, bidding the weaker to stand aside or be crushed. Here no man was a human being, but each merely a portion of an inconceivably complicated mechanism. The shiny-hatted figure, who rushed or sauntered, gloomed by himself at corners, or made one of a talking group, might elsewhere be found a reasonable and kindly person, with traits, peculiarities. Here one could see in him nothing but a money-maker of this or that class, ground to a certain pattern. The smooth working of the huge machine made it only the more sinister. One had but to remember what cold tyranny, what elaborate fraud, were served by its manifold ingenuities, only to think of the cries of anguish stifled by its monotonous roar. Piers had undertaken a task, and would not shirk it, but in spite of all reasonings and idealisms, he found life a hard thing during those weeks of August. He lost his sleep, turned from food, and for a moment feared collapse such as he suffered soon after his first going to Odessa. 
by the good offices of john jacks he had already been elected to a convenient club and occasionally he passed an evening there but his habit was to go home to guildford street and sit hour after hour in languid brooding he feared the streets at night-time in his loneliness and misery a gleam upon some wanton face would perchance have lured him as had happened ere now not so much at the bidding of his youthful blood as out of mere longing for companionship the common cause of disorder in men condemned to solitude in great cities a woman's voice a touch of a soft hand this is what men so often hunger for when they are censured for lawless appetite but piers otway knew himself and chose to sit alone in the dreary lodging-house then he thought of irene trying to forget what had happened now and then successfully in a waking dream he saw and heard her and knew again the exalting passion that had been the best of his life and was saved from ignoble impulse when he was at the lowest there came a letter from olga hannaford the first he had ever received in her writing olga had joined her mother at malvern and mrs hannaford was so unwell that it seemed likely they would remain there for a few weeks when we can move the best thing will be to take a house in or near london mother has decided not to return to bryanston square and i for my part shall give up the life you made fun of you were quite right of course it was foolish to go on in that way she asked him to write to her mother whom a line from him would cheer piers did so also replying to his correspondent and trying to make a humorous picture of the life he led between the city and guildford street it was a sorry jest but it helped him against his troubles when in a week's time olga again wrote he was glad the letter seemed to him interesting it revived their common memories of life at geneva whither olga said she would like to return what to do how to pass the years before me is the question with me now as i suppose it is with so many girls of my age i must find a mission can you suggest one only don't let it have anything humanitarian about it that would make me a humbug which i have never been yet it must be something entirely for my own pleasure and profit do think about it in an idle moment with recovery from his physical ill-being came a new mental restlessness the return rather of a mood which had always assailed him when he lost for a time his ideal hope he demanded of life the joy natural to his years revolted against the barrenness of his lot a terror fell upon him lest he should be fated never to know the supreme delight of which he was capable and for which alone he lived even now was he not passing his prime losing the keener faculties of youth he trembled at the risks of every day what was his assurance against the common ill-hap which might afflict him with disease blight his life with accident so that no woman's eye could ever be tempted to rest upon him he cursed the restrictions which held him on a straight path of routine of narrow custom 
when a world of possibilities spread about him on either hand the mirage of his imprisoned spirit adventurous projects succeeded each other in his thoughts he turned to the lands where life was freer where perchance his happiness awaited him had he but the courage to set forth what brought him to london this squalid blot on the map of the round world why did he consume the irrecoverable hours amid its hostile tumult its menacing gloom on the first sunday in september he aroused himself to travel by an early train which bore him far into the country he had taken a ticket at hazard for a place with a pleasant-sounding name and before village bells had begun to ring he was wandering in deep lanes amid the weald of sussex all about him lay the perfect loveliness of that rural landscape which is the old england the true england the england dear to the best of her children meadow and copse the yellow rank of new-reaped sheaves brown roofs of farm and cottage amid shadowing elms the grassy border of the road hedges with their flowered creepers and promise of wild fruit these things brought him comfort mile after mile he wandered losing himself in simplest enjoyment forgetting to ask why he was alone when he felt hungry an inn supplied him with a meal again he rambled on and in a leafy corner found a spot where he could idle for an hour or two until it was time to think of the railway station he had tired himself his mind slipped from the beautiful things around him and fell into the old reverie he murmured the haunting name irene as well as for her who bore it he loved the name for its meaning peace as a child he had been taught that no word was more beautiful more solemn at this moment he could hear it in his father's voice sounding as a note of music with a tremor of deep feeling peace every year that passed gave him a fuller understanding of his father's devotion to that word in all its significance he himself knew something of the same fervor and was glad to foster it in his heart peace what better could a man pursue from of old the desire of wisdom the prayer of the aspiring soul and what else was this love for which he anguished irene herself the beloved sought with passion and with worship what more could she give him when all was given than content repose peace he had been too ambitious it was the fault of his character and thus far on his life's journey in recognizing the error might he not correct it unbalanced ambition explained his ineffectiveness at six-and-twenty he had done nothing and saw no hope of activity correspondent with his pride in russia he had at least felt that he was treading an uncrowded path he had made his own a language familiar to very few western europeans and constantly added to his knowledge of a people moving to some unknown greatness the position was not ignoble but here in london he was lost amid the uproar of striving tradesmen the one thing which would still have justified him hope of wealth had all but vanished 
he must get rid of his observed self-estimate, see himself in the light of common day. Peace. He could only hope for it in marriage. But what was marriage without ideal love? Impossible that he should ever love another woman as he had loved, as he still loved, Irene. The ordinary man seeks a wife just as he takes any other practical step necessary to his welfare. He marries because he must, not because he has met with the true companion of his life. He mates to be quiet, to be comfortable, to get on with his work, whatever it be. Love in the high sense, between man and woman, is of all things the most rare. Few are capable of it. To fewer still it is granted. The crown of life, said Jerome Otway, a truth even from the strictly scientific point of view, for is not a great mutual passion the culminating height of that blind reproductive impulse from which life begins? Supreme desire, perfection of union, the purpose of nature, translated into human consciousness, become the glory of the highest soul, uttered in the lyric rapture of noblest speech. That he must renounce, but not thereby was he condemned to a foolish or base alliance. Women innumerable might be met, charming, sensible, good, no unfit objects of his wooing. In all modesty he might hope for what the world calls happiness, but put it at the best, he would be doing as other men do, taking a wife for his solace, for the defeat of his assailing blood. It was the bitterness of his mere humanity that he could not hope to live alone and faithful. Five years ago he might have said to himself, Irene or no one, and have said it with the honesty of youth, of inexperience. No such enthusiasm was possible to him now. For the thing which is common in fable is all but unknown in life. A man, capable of loving ardently, who, for the sake of one woman, beyond his hope, sacrifices love altogether. Piers Otway, who read much verse, had not neglected his Browning. He knew the transcendent mood of Browning's ideal lover, the beatific dream of love eternal, world after world, hoping forever, and finding such hope preferable to every less noble satisfaction. For him, a mood only, passing with a smile and a sigh. To that he was not equal. These heights heroic were not for his treading. Too insistent were the flesh and blood that composed his earthly being. He must renounce the best of himself, step consciously to a lower level. Only, let it not prove sheer degradation. In all his struggling against the misery of loss, one thought never tempted him. Never, for a fleeting instant, did he doubt that his highest love was at the same time highest reason. Men woefully deceive themselves, yearning for women whose images in their minds is a mere illusion, women who scarce for a day could bring them happiness, and whose companionship through life would become a curse. Be it so. Piers knew it, dwelt upon it as a perilous fact, 
it had no application to his love for irene derwent indeed piers was rich in that least common form of intelligence the intelligence of the heart emotional perspicacity the power of recognizing through all forms of desire one's true affinity in the other sex is bestowed upon one mortal in a vast multitude not lack of opportunity alone accounts for the failure of men and women to mate becomingly only the elect have eyes to see even where the field of choice is freely open to them but piers otway saw and knew once and forever he had the genius of love where he could not observe divination came to his help his knowledge of irene derwent surpassed that of the persons most intimate with her and he could as soon have doubted his own existence as the certainty that irene was what he thought her neither more nor less but he had erred in dreaming it possible that he might win her love that he was not all unworthy of it his pride continued to assure him what he had failed to perceive was the impossibility circumstances being as they were of urging a direct suit of making himself known to irene his birth his position the accidents of his career all forbade it this had been forced upon his consciousness from the very first in hours of despondency or of torment but he was too young and too ardent for the fact to have its full weight with him hope resisted passion refused acquiescence nothing short of what happened could reveal to him the vanity of his imaginings he looked back on the years of patient confidence with wonder and compassion had he really hoped yes for he had lived so long alone paragraphs morning evening and weekly had long since published miss derwent's engagement those making simple announcement of the fact were trial enough to him when his eye fell upon them intolerable were those which commented as in the case of a society journal which he had idly glanced over at his club this taught him that irene had more social importance than he guessed her marriage would be something of an event heaven grant that he might read no journalistic description of the ceremony few things more disgusted him than the thought of a fashionable wedding he could see nothing in it but profanation and indecency that mattered little to be sure in the case of ordinary people who were born and lived and died in fashionable routine anxious only to exhibit themselves at any given moment in the way held to be good form but it was hard to think that custom's tyranny should lay its foul hand on irene derwent perhaps her future husband meant no such thing and would arrange it all with quiet becomingness certainly her father would not favor the tawdry and the vulgar no date was announced paragraphs said merely that it would be before the end of the year after all his day amid the fields was spoilt he had allowed his mind to stray in the forbidden direction and the seeming quiet to which he had attained was overthrown once more heavily he moved towards the wayside station and drearily he waited for the train that was to take him back to his meaningless 
toil and strife. In the compartment he entered, an empty one, some passenger had left a weekly periodical. Piers seized upon it gladly, and read to distract his thoughts. One article interested him. It was on the subject of national characteristics. Cleverly written, what is called smart journalism, with grip and epigram, with hint of universal knowledge, and the true air of British superiority. Having scanned the writer's comment on the Slavonic peoples, Piers laughed aloud. So, evidently, it was a report at second or third hand, utterly valueless to one who had any real acquaintance with the Slavs. This moment of spontaneous mirth did him good, helped to restore his self-respect, and as he pondered, old ambitions stirred again in him. Could he not make some use of the knowledge he had gained so laboriously, some use other than that whereby he earned his living? Not so long ago he had harbored great designs, vague but not irrational, and today, even in bidding himself be humble, his intellect was little tuned to humility. He had never, at his point of darkest depression, really believed that life had no shining promise for him. The least boastful of men, he was at heart one of the most aspiring. His moods varied wonderfully. When he alighted at the London terminus, he looked and felt like a man refreshed by some new hope. Half by accident, he kept the paper he had been reading. It lay on his table in Guildford Street for weeks, for months. Years after, he came upon it one day in turning out the contents of a trunk, and remembered his ramble in the Sussex woodland, and smiled at the chances of life. On Monday morning he had a characteristic letter from Montcharmont, part English, part French, part Russian, nothing, or only a passing word, about business. Communications of that sort were all addressed to the office, and were as concise, as practical, as any trader could have desired. In his friendly letter, Montcharmont chatted of a certain Polish girl with whom he had newly made acquaintance, whose beauty, according to the good André, was a thing to dream of, not to tell. It meant nothing, as peers knew. The cosmopolitan Swiss fell in love some dozen times a year, with maidens or women of every nationality and every social station. Be the issue what it might, he was never unhappy. He had a gallery of photographs, and delighted to pore over it, indulging reminiscences or fostering hopes. Once in a twelve-month or so, he made up his mind to marry, but never went further than the intention. It was doubtful whether he would ever commit himself irrevocably. It seemed such a pity, he often said, with his pensively humorous smile, to limit the scopes of one's emotions, Bonner la carrière à ses Then he sighed, and was in the best of spirits, not even to Montcharmont, with whom he talked more freely than any other man, had Piers ever spoken of Irene. André, of course, suspected some romantic attachment, and was in constant amaze at Piers's fidelity. "'Ah, you English, you English!' he would exclaim. 
you are the stoics of the modern world i admire yes i admire but my friend i do not wish to imitate the letter cheered otway's breakfast he read it instead of the newspaper and with vastly more benefit another letter had come to his private address a note from mrs hannaford she was regaining strength and hoped soon to come south again her brother had already taken a nice little house for her at campton hill where olga would have a sort of studio and she trusted would make herself happy both looked forward to seeing peers they sent him their very kindest remembrances. End of chapter 20